WNYC Studios is supported by Zuckerman Spader. Through nearly five decades of taking on high-stakes legal matters, Zuckerman Spader is recognized nationally as a premier litigation and investigations firm. Their lawyers routinely represent individuals, organizations, and law firms in business disputes, government, and internal investigations, and at trial. When the lawyer you choose matters most. Online at Zuckerman.com. Radio Lab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org slash podcast. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Oh, wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. <coughs> you're listening, listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. From WNYC. Hey, I'm Latif Nasser. This is Radio Lab. And this week, our story comes from. Hey, Latif. Hi. Avir Mitra who's one of our contributing editors. Avir, after his stint as a Radiolab intern, and then as an international rock star, became an emergency room doctor. Actually, during the height of the pandemic, Tensions are high today. March 26, 2020. He brought us a gripping portrait of his ER under siege. All the ICUs are bustling. Today's story is not about COVID. It's a lot less scary, a lot more fantastical. It's about dirt, dueling statues, and a secret molecule that stops time. It might even reverse it. So, you know, a lot of times I'll I'll be working in the ER and... You know, we have just so many meds going into somebody, so many different drugs going through an IV. And sometimes I just step back and I think, like, where did these come from? Like, how did this drug end up here in my hands going into this patient? It's like a relay race, you know? And this baton has been passed forward and forward, and I'm the last guy, and I'm putting it into the patient. But I don't really even know, like, how far back did this baton go? So sometimes I go home and at night I'll, I'll look it up. And most times, honestly, it's just whatever. But recently I, I was looking into one of the drugs that we see pretty often in all these different contexts in the hospital. And ever since I looked it up, I've been obsessed. I think it has the craziest backstory I've ever heard for a drug. All right, we are recording. Okay, so it starts with this guy named Ajay. Uh, my name is Ajay Sagal. And the last name, you can pronounce it, Seagal, Seagal, Seagal. So back in 1982... I remember exactly where I was. I was in Germany serving with the Canadian forces. His family was back in Montreal. And one day, it was just, it was around Christmas time, actually. I got a telegram saying, Dad and I are moving to the United States. Stop. Your room is packed. Stop. We'll leave your stuff with Chacha. Stop. Chacha's my father's younger brother. And I go, what? Why are you leaving to move to the United States? Well, what happened was my husband, Serene, received a 
noticed that you'll be moving to Princeton, New Jersey. This is Ajay's mom, Uma. Uma Segal. And she says her husband, Saran, was working for this drug company. There's McKenna and Harrison. And out of nowhere, one day they say, we're shutting down our Montreal labs. Like, if you want to keep your job, you got to move to New Jersey. So, you know, my parents were moving. Ajay, he's a good son. He comes home to help them move. The day we had to move was very cold, 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 freezing day. My girlfriend and I were helping them pack and move. He's like packing things up in boxes, you know, moving dressers. And I was going to pack the freezer. And all of a sudden his dad is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Stop right there. He shows him these little glass jars. Like a few vials. I think like three or four of them, sealed with plastic tape, with some white substance inside. I didn't I didn't say anything. This is his work. But Ajay's just kind of like, um, what is this? Yep. And that's when Ajay realizes, like, oh my God, my dad is stealing this stuff from his lab. I said, Dad's not legal to take that across the border. And Surin just kind of shoots his son this look. Goes, just pack and dry ice. So Ajay did what he was told. I went to the grocery store, bought some dry ice, and we put this compound into uh, an ice cream container, then into another container. And you know, like, if you're Indian, you already know. Like, you open any random yogurt container in the fridge, the last thing it's going to have is yogurt. Yes. So they took this container. And wrote, do not eat, (laughs) something like that. And it went into the freezer. And I sealed the freezer with duct tape so United Van Lines wouldn't open it up. No, nobody said anything at the border, (laughs) you know. We smuggled it across the U.S. border into the United States in the freezer. The rest is history. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I don't know the numbers at all, but like this may be one of the biggest international smuggling events in medicine. Oh, come on. (laughs) Okay, I, I actually don't know. But that stuff in those vials on its way to New Jersey in a freezer in a moving truck that stuff was going to become a billion-dollar drug one day and save millions of people's lives and ultimately teach us some very fundamental lessons about our biologic nature. Okay, but are you going to tell me what what drug it is, actually? I will, but not yet, because this story isn't just about the drug, all right? It's like about this guy who was really possessed by this drug and led it through all sorts of obstacles to get it to us. My father's full name was Surrender Nath. Segal, but he went by Seren. Seren was a biologist. Brilliant microbiologist. And the thing he really cared about was studying drugs. And where my father got it from was uh, he essentially followed in his father's footsteps. Seren's dad ran a pharmaceutical plant. In the uh, 1930s, early 1940s, in the area of Kushab. Which is in modern-day Pakistan. And that's the environment that my father grew up in. And then when he was a, a teenager... Everything went to hell in a handbasket, and the partition occurred. As the new dominions of Pakistan and India take over their own affairs, the bloodshed goes on. And all of a sudden, Saran and his family had to abandon their home and the life that they knew. From their looted, blood-stained towns, a million displaced persons. With the shirts on their backs and what they could carry, Hindus and Muslims seek safety in new surroundings. They boarded a train and, and rode to New Delhi. And the, the family lost everything. They were, they were very poor. But despite all this chaos, Surin manages to go to college and then grad school. He got his PhD at 25. I remember this picture of my father. It says, Professor Segal and his class. 
And there's this young whippersnipper lying prone on the ground, holding his head up with his arm, and a bunch of old guys behind him who were the class. And not long after that... He emigrated to Canada. He said he had 50 cents in his pocket. So, you know, that was enough to buy a meal back then. And uh, he basically started life over uh, in Canada. Okay, so do me a favor, Latif. Hold this image of Saran arriving in Canada in 1958 on one side of your mind. Okay. And on the other side of the split screen, I'm going to tell you a very different migration story. This one starts in 1000 AD. There's some spiritual leader on an island in the Pacific Ocean. And one day he has this vision in a dream. In this dream, he's like a bird and he flies over the ocean. And when he does that, he sees in his dream this island that has like cliffs and it has like volcanic craters. And he tells his people that, you know, a bunch of you need to go off and find this island. So what they do is they send a group of about 100 people that are a mix of like all the different facets of society. So you've got, you know, women of childbearing age, explorers, shamans, farmers, spiritual leaders. And they basically just take two wooden canoes and put a about a 100-foot platform between them. So it's kind of like a catamaran, I guess. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, it's like this mini Noah's Ark. Wow. And they proceed to traverse these huge waves and storms and just in the middle of nowhere for thousands of miles, at least a thousand miles they traveled, all just based on this dude having a dream. Lo and behold, they find an island. It's got tons of trees. It's got cliffs. It's got volcanic craters and stones. Hmm. Basically, just as this guy described in his dream. So they land on this island that their descendants now call Rapa Nui. These 100 people, they flourish. Like their population grows. And then, as the story goes, their society suddenly collapses, leaving behind like lots of questions about what really happened there. And so, let's hop forward. It was a beautiful morning. December 13th, 1964. A boat with a couple dozen Canadian scientists lands on the shores of this island. It is one of the loneliest islands in the world. This is Easter Island. It sits alone more than 2,000 miles off the coast of South America. Oh, like the Easter Island with the big heads? Yeah, exactly. Some weighing 30 tons, some 20 feet tall. These huge two-story stone heads. No one knows for sure who made them. Or how long it is they have been staring seaward to mystify the world. And and so the Canadian government had sent this expedition. A medical expedition to Easter Island. Because of like how removed the island was from the rest of the world. Isolation has been their protection. And so these scientists wanted to explore everything about the island and learn about the people. Prepares blood samples. Learn about the bacteria, the plants, animals. And one of the things they do is... The island was mapped into small squares. They take soil samples. dozens of samples of soil from all over the island. What is this soil best suited to grow? Why would they look in the dirt? Like, it seems so random to me. The dirt was an afterthought for them. Oh. But they, they kind of just wanted to see, like, is there anything in here that we haven't seen before? So to figure that out, once they collect the soil, they pack it up and send it to a bunch of different scientists all over Canada to take a closer look. 
And one of them is our friend Saren. Yes. So by this time in Saren's life in the 60s, he's got a job doing drug research. He's married Uma. They've had Ajay. He's just kind of like your typical Indian dad. What does he look like, by the way? He looks like one of my uncles. Even when I'm saying his name like Surin now, I feel like I should actually be saying Surin uncle. He's just got a very Indian uncle vibe. You want to explain what an Indian uncle vibe is? What does it mean to be an Indian uncle? All right. First of all, they're not your actual uncle. Not related not, to you. Definitely not related to you. Yeah. Surin, when I see pictures of him, he's wearing a suit, you know. That's what the Indian uncle will wear. He's got glasses on, like very like 80s glasses. <laughs> but then in another one, he's got like sunglasses on, which is like, that's also part of being the Indian uncle is you're a little, you're a little cool. You're a little cool sometimes. <laughs> he, he's clean shaven, kind of balding. When I was talking to his son. Before I could go out and play at night, I had to read any article in the Encyclopedia Britannica and then write a one-page essay on it. I feel like I already know this guy. Probably started uh, when I was eight years old. <laughs> like a science-oriented family man just trying to like establish himself in a new country. And it's in the midst of this, you know, kind of humdrum life when this dirt... I always imagined it as a canister of dirt. ...from this mysterious island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean lands on his desk. So he's just kind of like, let's see what's in this soil. And he began to try to isolate unique compounds from, from that soil sample. So he basically takes the soil... They, they examine it under the microscope. And eventually, Seren and his team... They go, oh, that's interesting. They isolated a compound that was not seen before and it had a very interesting molecular structure. And it's kind of this clear, white, crystalline type of powder-looking thing. And Seren's like... Hmm, I wonder what it does. And so... They test it. They put the compound on different Petri dishes and... They expose it to certain bacteria, certain fungi. To kind of see how they'll react to the compound. And then they observe. And after a few days, they notice... Any uh, fungus they put it in contact with... Would just stop growing. It's like time had just kind of frozen. Huh. Like, he would have expected that, like, that amount of fungi would just keep, like, dividing and boop, 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 boop. Exactly, yeah. By this point, it should have coated the whole plate just covered in fungi. Just like if you leave, you know, old yogurt in the fridge, it'll just get covered in mold, you know? <laughs> so that's what should have happened, but instead, it didn't happen. Hmm. So he's like, ooh, maybe this could be an antifungal. Get a tough case of athlete's foot in your bench. Like all those creams people can use like for yeast infections. Like, Boom. you know. Tough acting to actin. Maybe something like that, right? Right. So for the next few years, Saran is just like trying this stuff out on mice, basically you know, giving them fungal infections and seeing if it works. He tries it on dogs. Ajay even says he tried it on a friend's wife who had a fungal infection on her arm. Wait, can you even do that? Yeah. <laughs> He's carrying it around like in his back pocket. And he pulls it out at this family friend's house and he puts it on her arm. And she tried it and it completely eliminated the fungal infection. So he's totally stoked at this point. Wait, like, to me, this is so strange because it, like, it's it's like the opposite of what you expect. Like, you expect, like, it's like, okay, disease, we got a problem, now let's go find a solution. But this is like, this is like the opposite. It's like, okay, we have a solution, let's go find a problem. Like, uh, <laughs> like it feels backwards. Oh, so you, you think scientists know what they're doing, <laughs> which is funny, because 
They don't. We don't. Like that, that sort of backwards discovery, I think that's actually pretty common. Think of something like aspirin, right? Like people were using this bark off of this tree before any scientists ever knew what was going on. Hmm. So anyhow, going back to Seren, he feels like he's got a hit on his hands, like a perfect fungal freezer. He said, I'm sure it's better than anything else I've ever worked on. My dad used to call it my compound. My compound. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he also gives it a name. Rapamycin. Rapamycin, after the Rapa Nui island that it came from. Oh. So he files for a patent for this drug, and he publishes his first paper in 1975. But then there's the problem. Seren is starting to see that not only does his compound freeze the fungus... It had very strong immunosuppressant properties. It does the exact same thing to immune cells, too. Ah, so it's like Elsa from Frozen. Like, just anything it touches, it just freezes. That's exactly his thought. Wow, okay. Which is a bad thing because you need immune cells to basically grow really quickly when you have an infection and kind of destroy the infection. I sensed like a disappointment in him because he'd been working on this for quite some time. Like he felt like he was just getting started with rapamycin. But Ayers, the company that Saran was working for, didn't give a damn for that, you know? To them, rapamycin is now useless. They ordered the lab to be destroyed. This was that moment in 1982 where Ayers was shutting down its entire Montreal office. They were all clearing the tables, destroying so many things, so much work of everyone. What was he saying at that time? What did he say to you about his feelings? on? Oh, he was so disappointed. He said, I have such a good thing in my hand and they want me to destroy it. He knew that if they destroyed all the samples of it, they'd never be able to synthesize it again. I think there was something about rapamycin that was still calling to Seren. Like, the fact that it was freezing the fungus and the immune system, it, it just didn't make sense. So when his bosses said, throw it out... He couldn't do it. He couldn't let go. So... In this act of, like, thug passion, I guess, <laughs> he walks over to the trash. He picked up from the trash. He pulled it right out of the trash? Uh-huh. Right out of trash. <laughs> he said, we have to save this. I have a feeling about this drug. He brought it home and said, Uma, put this in the freezer. And smuggled it all the way to New Jersey. Just because he had this feeling it was going to be big. Aha! I don't want to stop, but we, but we have to go to break. Okay. Do you want to tell people why they should stick around even after the break? Um, you should stick around because after the break, Seren's feeling turns out to be right. All right. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Deidre from the Long Beach Peninsula, Washington. Radiolab is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. Science reporting on Radiolab is supported in part by Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. Radiolab is supported by BetterHelp. Whether it's already 2 a.m. on a fun night out, graduation time, a new year, we can find ourselves wishing we had more time, wondering where it all went. But there's a question. If we were magically given that time back, what would we do with it? 
Perhaps you'd spend more time with a friend that you've lost touch with or petting your dog or just noticing the sweetness of doing nothing. The best way to let those special things into your life is to know what's important to you so that you can make it a priority going forward. A therapist can guide you through the process of defining your values and understanding your priorities so you know what things you can spend your time on that will really fulfill you. BetterHelp offers convenient, affordable online therapy that comes to you. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Learn how to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Radiolab today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Radiolab. WNYC Studios is supported by Zuckerman Spader. Through nearly five decades of taking on high-stakes legal matters, Zuckerman Spader is recognized nationally as a premier litigation and investigations firm. Their lawyers routinely represent individuals, organizations, and law firms in business disputes, government, and internal investigations, and at trial. When the lawyer you choose matters most. Online at Zuckerman.com. Radiolab is supported by TurboTax. TurboTax experts make all your moves count, filing with 100% accuracy and getting your max refund guaranteed. So whether you started a podcast, side-hustled your way to concert tickets, or sold Hollywood memorabilia, switch to TurboTax and make your moves count. See guarantee details at TurboTax.com guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax Live. Radio Lab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org slash podcast. Latif of the Radio Lab. Okay, so before the break, we met this drug researcher, Seren, who ended up with this substance called rapamycin uh, from Rapa Nui or Easter Island that mysteriously freezes everything it touches, which looked like it could be a great thing for people with fungal problems, but then not quite because it actually freezes your immune system too, which you need. So uh, now what? Right, exactly. So his bosses are over it. They're like, throw it out. He steals it, brings it back to New Jersey. Fast forward five years, stuff is sitting in his freezer, um, and he ends up with some new bosses. Our next major story is from our medical beat. And by now, that feeling he'd always had, that this drug would be big, had become an idea. Successful kidney transplantation was confined to the tiny world of identical twins. So this is the late 80s, and organ transplantation, which is this field that until recently was basically science fiction, uh, was just starting to go mainstream. But as the year ran on... But the big hurdle doctors were facing was the immune system. Patients died, sometimes of rejection. They hadn't really perfected how to stop people's immune systems from attacking their new organs. Sometimes because the powerful drugs given to overcome rejection laid them open to infections. There were not a, a lot of effective immunosuppressive drugs, and the ones that were out there were weren't exactly that great. They had a lot of side effects. So Saren thought maybe rapamycin could be used for this. So he pitches it to his new bosses. And they're like, okay, this sounds good. But they, they actually said, well, there's, this is not possible because all the samples are destroyed. And he says, well, about that. Maybe not. <laughs> he came home. And he took it out <laughs> of the freezer. and they, they, Right next to the Ben and Jerry's. <laughs> they didn't know whether the compound was good enough after five years in the freezer. But to his surprise, it was just as active 
as it was five years ago. I know that. I was very excited about it. And that became the, the, the seed. So now it's like game on for Surin. This is his world. So he's in the lab every day trying to figure out how does this drug work? Like why in the world would this drug be freezing everything it touches? And at the same time, he's sending it around to all these other scientists, trying to get them to help figure out what's going on. Like, try this. This is like the DIY, like, indie band way of developing a drug. Because he really just has no idea how this stuff works. Yeah, that's right. But that's about to change. Thanks to this guy. Sure, my name is David Sabatini. I'm a biologist. I've got an institute called the Whitehead Institute, which... But back in 1992... When Surin's sending the sample all over the place, Sabatini was just a student. It was about a year and a half into medical school, whatever that would put you in. He's an MD-PhD student, which means he's like not just a high achiever enough to become a doctor. He wants to become like a doctor and a scientist at the same time. But he's been struggling. He, he can't figure out what to do his dissertation on. So he's walking around the lab one day trying to figure out like, what am I going to do my dissertation on? And then what I found was this notebook that said rapamycin bibliography. And in fact, I still have it somewhere here. And it comes with some vials of rapamycin too. And then it had a note. Like a little post-it note. Good luck, Seren. And so Sabatini's like, I'm going to be the one to figure out how this drug works. Like that's going to be my PhD project. And Sabatini knew that in order for a drug to work, it basically has to attach to something in the body. And the real question was what that something else was. And so I developed a, a way of looking for that something else. Pinky, are you pondering what I'm pondering? I think so, Brain, but there's still a bug stuck in here from last time. So literally what you do is you sacrifice a rat. Remove its brain. Put it into a blender. Mix this up, make a smoothie. It looks like a milkshake at that point. I'm going to put rapamycin in the smoothie. Let's see what this thing attaches to. And the way he does that is he creates this experiment. He basically puts a little radioactive label onto rapamycin so it will light up. Okay. And he mixes that in with the brain smoothie. Then he just dumps out the brain and looks at it and sees if anything lights up. Because if it does, you know that the rapamycin is there. It attached to something in the brain. Huh. And there's some part of this brain sticking to the rapamycin. So the rapamycin is doing something. It's sticking to something. Yeah, I certainly remember that first time that I ran my assay and I could tell that it had clearly bound to something. How did you feel? Oh, it was amazing, right? And that's when I basically stopped sleeping. Because he still didn't know what that thing was that the rapamycin was sticking to. That was going to take a lot more work and a lot more rat brains. I ended up doing experiments where you know, I would sometimes have 300 rats that have to use 300 rat brains. I mean, and I did those multiple times to get enough material eventually to identify what that protein was, and it turned out to be a very big protein. And when he tries to look it up in a database, it's not there. Uh huh. This is a completely unknown, huge protein. Nobody, nobody had ever seen it before. And scientists ended up settling on the name mTOR, which stood for Mechanistic Target of Rapamycin. And it turns out CERN had sent this sample, you know, to other people too. So a couple other labs are just at the same time making the same discovery. And they find out that this thing that it's attaching to doesn't just exist in rat brains. It exists in every cell of the rat. And in fact, it exists in every cell of yeast, of worms, and basically of every single living multicellular species. Oh, wow. So it lives in all of our cells too? Yeah. 
But somehow we had never seen it before and nobody knew what it was doing. I didn't know what mTOR did. Couldn't figure out anything. And it took me a long time. Like almost a decade. I remember I once gave a talk to my lab at, at a lab retreat and I think I called it the dark ages. Obviously this requires hundreds of experiments, but mTOR, what is it doing? Okay, no, of course. Um, so, you know, from the earliest days, before we knew about mTOR, we had rapamycin. And the beauty of rapamycin was that in many ways it gave us a window into what mTOR was doing before we even knew mTOR existed. And what he realizes is mTOR, it's a sensor. It senses nutrients, and then it tells the cell grow or don't grow. So it's it basically receives signals from the outside of the cell, right? And it's the signals it's sensing is like, how much good stuff is there that I have access to? Is there glucose, you know, protein, fat, oxygen, a lack of stress. We have all that stuff. mTOR turns up and tells the cell then to grow. Sure. If the good stuff isn't there, mTOR turns down and the cell stops growing as much. It doesn't get as big. And so the way I like to think about it is that mTOR is basically at a, at a construction project. And, you know, in a construction project, you have all these different trades, right? The plumbers, the carpenters, the electricians, the concrete pourers, the bricklayers. So mTOR is the organizer of that. And, and in the construction trade, you'd call this a general contractor. So mTOR is taking the signals, for example, what the owners of the building want, whether there's money or not, whether the concrete supplier can't bring concrete tomorrow. It's taking all those inputs and then controlling all those processes. And if the inputs look bad for building, like, say, there's not enough pipes, the general contractor is not going to let the plumber install the pipes if you know, if the general contractor knows there aren't enough pipes to install right now. So it's going to say, stop. And mTOR is making the decision as to which of those two states you're in by measuring the presence or absence of nutrients. What rapamycin does is it tricks cells in your body to thinking there's low nutrients when nutrients are there. So if you think about mTOR as a general contractor, rapamycin is like a blindfold. It's covering the general contractor's eyes so it can't see the plumbing or the concrete or whatever. And so the general contractor just shuts down the project, even though all the things it needs are there. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. And so the effect of it basically is that rapamycin just slows down growth. Yeah, exactly. More or less, it freezes it. Whether it's fungus cells or immune cells, it just can't grow. So when it turns out, while Sabatini was figuring out all this stuff with mTOR, transplants are becoming so much easier to perform. Surin improved immunosuppressant drugs. had been sending out rapamycin to all these transplant doctors, and it was working. Recent medical advances. It was working so well, in fact, that rapamycin would end up getting FDA approval for immune suppression in 1999. And not only that, other doctors are starting to realize, like, maybe I can use this as an immunosuppressant, too, for, like, other things. Like, doctors had recently come up with this new technology to save people who are having a heart attack called a stent. And what it is is it's basically a little tube that you slip into someone's artery in their heart to keep it open. The only problem is that when you put a tube into someone's body, their body's like, why is this tube inside of me? Like, I don't want it. Get it away from me. So your immune system starts sort of rejecting it. Until one day, a doctor who had read one of Cern's papers thinks, let me try coating the stent in rapamycin. And boom, like that, all of a sudden, stents lasting. Wow. He was so excited that the heart stents are coated with uh, his drug. And one day, Cern has this moment 
where he really sees up close the kind of impact that rapamycin is having. Oh, Pittsburgh. He and Umar are in Pittsburgh, and one of the doctors who'd been using rapamycin invites them to tour the children's ward at this hospital. There were kidney transplantation survivors who were on my father's drug as part of this uh, clinical trial. And as CERN's being led around this children's transplant ward, the doctor giving the tour said, This is the guy that invented rapamycin. That guy who discovered the drug you are taking. And because of rapamycin, a lot of them were responding to their transplants really well. Really, really well. You have to understand that in these clinical trials, the the patients that they select are the ones that are not being helped by any other immunosuppressant. So this was sort of last resort for these kids. The word starts spreading around the hospital. Oh, he met so many patients. All the patients wanted to see him. The parents of these kids were like, Can I shake his hand? They all wanted to shake his hand. They just wanted to thank him, constantly thank him. For, for keeping their kids alive. He was so happy that it was working. Especially because at that moment... He was stage four, and we, we didn't have much longer with him. Wait, what? My father had been uh, diagnosed with uh, colon cancer. It was pretty serious. His doctor said he only had six months to live. But Uma says when Surin got this news... He said to the oncologist, I'll be here for five years. You'll see. He was very determined, I have to get better. I have to get better. He tells his wife he wanted to be around for his grandkids. But it wasn't just that. He said, a lot has to go on with my work also. He has so much work that he still wants to do on rapamycin, including his most daring experiment yet. Taking rapamycin. Taking rapamycin to see if it would treat his own cancer. So, like, his his doctor prescribed him rapamycin? No. No, he was getting it from the lab. He just decided to take it. On his own, uh, in pill form. I believe in this drug, and I think it just might be able to save me. Wait, but, but why? Like, why would, why would rapamycin help for cancer? Well, think about it, right? Like, what does rapamycin do? It stops cells from growing. So why not cancer cells? Hmm. You know, and no human had ever tried this. It's definitely a long shot. But he said, let me try that. And then the six-month mark comes and goes. The tumor action stopped. Another six months go by, he's still alive. Yes, yes. In fact, he's thriving. We were traveling all over the world. He's flying to conferences for work. We went to Japan, we went to China, we went to Thailand, we went to Europe many times. Another six months, he's publishing papers. He was very busy. And another... He's going to his grandkids' birthdays and another. And uh, then he just kept living, right? Oh, my God. Wow. So, like, what what actually is happening? So, like, the the rapamycin is, like, slowing, it's, like, freezing the cancer? Well, maybe that's happening. But maybe something even crazier is happening that even Surin had no idea about. What scientists are now just starting to wrap their head around is that when you turn down mTOR because you don't have enough of the good stuff, it doesn't just say stop. In fact, it deploys a whole nother program. And some people call that the starvation protocol. Uh. All right, so let's go back to this general contractor guy, right? mTOR. Yeah. What this general contractor actually says is like, 
We've fallen on hard times, everybody. There's no new materials coming in. Don't just sit there and wait for something good to happen. Instead, start fixing yourself up. Take all this junk laying around, recycle it. For example, if there are no pipes, hey, plumbers, like, why don't you go around this house and pick up all this junk that's sitting there and fix it up and see if you can make some pipes. Oh, got it. So that's what's going on inside the cell. Like, it's like, it's it's doing that thing. It's like taking up the garbage and like making it useful. Yeah, exactly. Some people call that autophagy, meaning eating yourself. Autophagy, eating yourself. Uh, but what, like, what is the, what is the garbage actually though in the cell? It's crazy because even in med school, we had histology and we would look at cells and we would be trying to identify all the little pieces of the cell. And I would always see, like, you could see on one side, there's this huge brown gunk just sitting there. And I'd be like, what is that? And I came to later learn that that's just junk. It's just deposit sitting there. Huh. And it's like, it's like clogging up the function of the cell? Is that what's going on? Yeah. That, that buildup of junk inside our cells over time makes us less efficient. It makes us sick. I talked to a bunch of scientists who study this. One of them, um, this guy, Matt Kaberlein. I am a professor of laboratory medicine and pathology at the University of Washington. Studied the effects of rapamycin on how long mice live. And we had this one mouse that kept going and going and going. They named him Ike. Ike, if, if we translated that linearly to human years, was about 125 years old. 130 years, yeah. Ike, yeah. wow. <laughs> right. But is this just like one super old mouse who you just made super older? No, no, that's the thing. Like, there's a government study that did this with a bunch of mice. These mice look and act younger. And it's not just mice. Like, scientists have seen these kind of results in every species they try it on. So it's yeast, worms, flies... They're even doing a study to try it in pet dogs. Wow. And so all of this is just because like rapamycin is just like clearing out all the junk? Yeah, because all that junk basically causes aging and over time will kill us. Like Kaberlein says, take something like Alzheimer's disease, right? What is that? That's tangles of proteins and junk that's sitting around in your brain cells that's getting in the way of like you having a thought. And there's tons of data in mice that rapamycin um, can improve cognitive aging in mice. Starting rapamycin before the decline starts prevents the decline. And starting rapamycin after the decline starts partially reverses the decline. So you're saying that rapamycin reverses Alzheimer's in mice? That's right. Wow. And it's not just Alzheimer's. It's like every marker of aging. It's other diseases too, like heart attacks, strokes, and cancer, which kind of brings us back to CERN. Like he was given six months in 1998 and now it's 2002. Oh, wow. So like almost the, oh, almost the five-year mark. Yeah. Five years when he was supposed to have been dead. He's still taking rapamycin and he's still alive. And so, yeah, maybe some of that anti-aging stuff is happening in Surin's body. Actually, there was no cancer in his colon anymore or the stomach or the liver. Uh, I mean, but like, how do you how do you know? Like, what, is there any way of measuring that that's the thing that's prolonging his life? At this point, it's hard to tell, you know, like at one point he also did chemo for his cancer. So is it the chemo? Is it the traditional meds? Is it the rapamycin? Surin has no idea. That's a mystery in his mind that's actually kind of eating away at him. And one day he goes and he tells my mom, he says, How do I know? I feel good. But how do I know if it's working or not? My, my drug is working or not? Is this working or am I just a fluke? Is it just so happening that I'm living longer than I was expected? But he's always going to stay the scientist, right? 
So he's like, there's only one way I'm going to figure out if rapamycin is keeping me alive. Uma, the only way I'm going to know if my drug works is if I stop taking it. He was experimenting on himself. And that's what he does. So he stopped taking the drug. And, um, you know, six months later... It came with vengeance. The cancer... It, was, it came into the lungs. It was in his lungs and he was not going to last very much longer. And so Uma tells him, like, you made your point. I said to him, I begged him to take it. Just start taking the rapamycin again. Yeah. He said, no. Just, it's, it's okay. Let nature take its course. That's all. He worked until the day he died. He, he the, the day before he died, he was still writing a paper. In bed. With the oxygen on his face. Writing a paper. On uh, advocating the uh, anti-tumor properties of rapamycin. Yeah. Surin died on January 21st, 2003. So Surin is gone, but this drug is still alive. It's still here. It's still being used. Yeah, really... It's just coming to life. It had been approved for immune suppression and stents during his lifetime. And then in the years after he died, these slight variations on it started getting approved for all these rare cancers, like dominoes, really. Approved for this one, approved for that one, approved for another one. Wow. And today, this drug is just a part of my world. 86-year-old male. His last had stents placed at NYU three years ago. Like just the other day. All right, sir. I know a lot's going on right now. Everyone's running all over the place. We're concerned because we think you may be having a heart attack. Guy came in with a heart attack. 50 years ago, he probably would have died. But we gave him a stent coated with a variation of rapamycin. And he's doing just fine. Does that sound like a plan to you? Mm-hmm. And on top of that, there's like dozens of studies going on to see if rapamycin can maybe one day prevent or reverse aging in humans. Oh, wow. And I mean, who knows? You know, it's not some miracle drug. Like, it doesn't work for every cancer. It has side effects. But what makes the story interesting to me, personally, all right, is not rapamycin, per se. Hmm. It's what rapamycin taught us about ourselves. And what is that? So to me, it's like mTOR, that general contractor protein that rapamycin showed us that we have. It tells ourselves when to grow and when to recycle the trash that's piled up inside them. If I was to design a cell, if I was to design myself, I would say I should be in a state where I can grow and I should also be able to clean up at the same time. Totally. But it turns out the way our bodies do it and the way every single living species does it is not that way. Hmm. We have two states and the more you do one, the less you can do the other. So you can be in a state where you are getting nutrients, you're getting the things you need. And when you're in that state, you're like building, you're growing. And only when you don't have those things, in other words, only the times where you run out of food, those are the times where your body doubles back and decides, okay, now is when I'm going to fix myself up. So what I think is profound is that there's just, you can be one or the other, but you can't really be both. Yeah. And why would nature do that? Well, I think You know, life is a mix of both of those states. We're never going to be always fed. We're never going to be always hungry. We're going to be in some mix. So why don't we delegate certain activities to happen during certain times of life? I think that's the meaning to me. 
So if you look at us today, look at the world we've created. You know, we don't like discomfort. We don't like pain. Mm -hmm. Because we're evolved to seek the good things. And that makes sense. But we are not evolved to actually have ever achieved a state where we get all the good things all the time. (laughs) It's actually bad for us. And we see that everywhere, obviously, right? Diabetes, hypertension, obesity. We see that on that level. But to me, this is the cell saying to to us. The cell is saying, I was actually designed and you were designed to have a mix of times where you have everything you want and a mix of times and sometimes where you don't have everything you want. And it's going to be painful, Hmm. but it's good for you. I think that's the true lesson that came from the dirt of Easter Island. So it's like the thing that we pulled out of Easter Island, it responded to a thing in us that we didn't even know was there, which is like a tiny switch on each of our cells that on one side says grow and on the other side it says like fix, basically. Right, exactly. And one of the coolest things I learned while reporting this story is that in a way, that lesson that rapamycin is teaching us about ourselves, that lesson has been present in the place that rapamycin came from for a really long time. Huh. What do you mean? Okay, so when you think about Rapa Nui, like Easter Island, you picture these huge Moai statues. They're basically like big stone old men with big well-fed bellies. Those statues were built when the culture was thriving. There was food, livestock, maybe fifteen to 20,000 people were living there. Hmm. They were feasting. But what most people don't know is that there's this other kind of statue on the island. Here, I'll pull one out here. A very different kind of statue. My uncle carved this a long time ago, and I sort of inherited it. This is Sergio Matau-Rapu. He grew up on the island, and he's the one who told me about these statues. Yeah, these statues are about a foot high, or like two feet high, made out of wood, pretty fragile wood. And they represent these like very starving, skinny, naked, almost frightened figures. Instead of hands wrapped around a big fat belly, it's these protruding ribs. His his spine is sticking out. His face is sunken. His Mm -hmm. eyes are just looking at you. Sergio says these statues came from a very different time in the island's history. At one point, we lost our massive trees and resources started diminishing. Without trees, it became hard to make boats to go fishing. And it also became hard to grow crops. People really started to struggle and they started to starve. And around the same time, Europeans started coming to the island and they brought disease, they enslaved people, and a lot of people on Rapa Nui died. My ancestors, this massive, powerful community that build these giant statues, like diminishes down to about 111 people. And that, Sergio says, is when they started making these little statues, the Moai Kava Kava. And I mean, when you read the history books about this island, Rapa Nui, right, the history books are going to say this is a failed island. That the Moai construction is like the pinnacle of my community. But Sergio says that's not how he sees it. To me, like the fact that people were able to adapt to difficult situations is what allows you to survive. It was important for them to understand like how to really do a lot with a little bit. And he says that, you know, even though most of the tourists come to see those big giant statues, for the people on the island, they treasure those small skinny statues just as much. I I think the story of uh, Rapa Nui is 
um, a, a metaphor for what uh, rapamycin does in your body. The, the way that I understand it, the way that rapamycin tricks your body into thinking that you're starving, it being a positive thing, I think oftentimes we on Rapa Nui also realize that having close to nothing is also positive in some ways. It reminds you of what you have. I think my big takeaway from this story is I like I need to go to my parents' house and look through every yogurt container in their <laughs> fridge. Because uh, there are a lot of them, and who knows uh, what could Well, be how many covered. of them have yogurt in them? None. 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 <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Contributing editor, Avir Mitra. This episode was produced by Sara Kari, Pat Walters, and Susie Lechtenberg, with production help from Corrine Leong and Rachel Cusick. Fact-checking by Diane Kelly. Special thanks to Richard Miller, Stuart Schreiber, Joanne Van Tilburg, Bethany Halford, and Ike the Mouse. Thank you very much for listening. Hi, this is Kira from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Radio Lab was created by Jad Abumrad and is edited by Soren Wheeler. Lulu Miller and Latif Nasser are our co-hosts. Susie Lechtenberg is our executive producer. Dylan Keith is our director of sound design. Our staff includes Simon Adler, Jeremy Bloom, Becca Bressler, Rachel Cusick, David Gable, Matt Tealty, Annie McEwen, Alex Neeson, Sara Kari, Arian Wack, Pat Walters, and Molly Webster. With help from Shima Oliayi, Sarah Sandbach, and Karen Leong. Our fact checkers are Diane Kelly and Emily Greiger. <laughs>